We now reach the fifth in our seven churches of Revelation, and we are looking today at Philadelphia. Now, anybody going, hang on, that's not next. Where's Sardis gone? Anybody do that? Oh, okay. I was, <laughs> I was hoping everyone, hang on, what's happened to Sardis? Why are we skipping the dead church? There's a reason for that. Um, and the fact is, is Cliff really, really wanted to do that one. That was down for this week. And then he remembered it was his anniversary. I mean, no, he knew it was his anniversary all along. Um, <clears throat> he remembered that the dates clashed. <laughs> And so we swapped them, but he still really wanted to do Sardis, so we're doing Sardis next week instead. I don't think I got him into trouble there. <laughs> yes, you did his message from fire, you have. Excellent. <laughs> uh, so this week we are talking about the letter to the church in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and this is the one where everybody immediately goes, ah, Philadelphia, of course. The city of brotherly love. And then you think, we're going to get a message on love in the church. Filial love, unconditional love, this is going to be nice. We're going to get an encouragement from the pastor to be good to one another. To be kind to one another. And to love one another. Well, no. I mean, yes, because... Those things are very important, very, and we should have a whole message on that, which we will do. Oh, yeah, in fact, we will do a whole message on that. I don't know when, but we will. But the letter to the church in Philadelphia is not about that at all. The word love does not appear in the letter to the church in Philadelphia. We just, we do this thing and our, our, our brains remember things sometimes a little bit different to how they are. And we go, Philadelphia means love, brotherly love, because that's what the word means. So the letter must be about that. But the name of the city has nothing to do with how the church was or the content of the letter. It was just the name of the city, just as the name of Billingham. Anyone know what Billingham means? Oh, I should have looked it up, shouldn't I? Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure it has nothing to do with who we are as a church. I should have looked that up. I was hoping. What I got told was, it was, there was a tribe of people called the Billings, and the Ham is from Hamlet. It's a hamlet where the Billings people lived. The hamlet where the Billings people lived. But there you go. <laughs> anyway, so if this letter's not about love, what's it about? Let's give it a read. Revelation 3, verse 7 to 13. Did you Google that, Sean? I know you're on the computer there. No, I'm from school. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel in the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write him on the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which we read about at the start of the meeting which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter is not about love, but endurance and obedience. Let's start just by looking at the city itself. Philadelphia was the youngest of all of the seven cities. And it was founded by colonists from Pergamum, which we covered a couple of weeks ago. Under the reign of a guy called Attalus II. He was the second guy to be ruling there called Attalus. That's how he got his name. He ruled Pergamum from 159 to 138 BC. Philadelphos, which was where the city got its name, is Greek for one who loves his brother. And Attalus named the city as a tribute to his brother. Isn't that nice? His brother was called Eunomies. So that's why it's known as the city of brotherly love. Nothing to do with the church, but the, the, when the city was founded, the guy who founded it named it after the fact that he loved his brother. If you were to find a hook for this church, it's not the church of brotherly love. It's the church of the open door. Or the little church that could. And I like that one best. <laughs> it's been said of Philadelphia that it was the center of the diffusion of Greek language and Greek letters in a peaceful land by peaceful means. What does that mean? It means it was a peaceful land that was this hub of sending the Greek culture further and beyond out of the Greek empire. So the church here found itself with an amazing opportunity in a city that was able to reach well beyond its borders. They found themselves in a position where they could take the gospel from there beyond where it had already been. As Jesus said in the letter, this church has an open door in front of it to take the gospel. What was the church itself like? Well, of all of the cities and all of the churches, Philadelphia gets the greatest praise. You know, we were just talking before the meeting, you know, we've heard of Philadelphia because there's places called Philadelphia. There's churches called Philadelphia. Because 
We want to identify with this church because it's so well praised. I know Smyrna is also praised, but you don't want to identify quite so much with the one that's persecuted. But you don't find any churches or cities calling themselves Pergamon. Welcome to the church of Pergamon. Doesn't quite, <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring to it. You know, this city in later years became a great city. When the Ottoman Empire flooded throughout the whole area, and so many other towns fell, Philadelphia stood. For centuries, it was this great Christian city amidst a pagan world. It was known as the last bastion of Christianity in the area. And it wasn't until about halfway through the 14th century that it actually fell to Islam. Sadly, Philadelphia today is a collection of ruins amidst a city called, oh, I'm going to say this wrong, Alazhia, which apparently means city of Allah. However, to this day, there is a Christian church in that city. With the exception of Smyrna, all the other churches are gone. But in Philadelphia, there's still the banner for Christ being held aloft. What is so admirable about this church? Because I don't know about you. If Jesus is going to compliment a church, I want to be like that church. What is Jesus saying? Well, let's start with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This letter starts with something very, very important. The holiness of Jesus. He is the holy one. He is the true one. Listen, before we go anywhere else, before we understand anything else, we need to have a true picture of who Jesus is. He is the Holy One. You know, right throughout the Old Testament, that is a title that's given to the Father. But now, that title belongs to Jesus as well. Holy means set apart. Let me tell you, there is no one like Jesus. There is none like him. There is none equal with Jesus. And when we hear the words of Jesus, we are hearing the words of God. He is the one who is holy. And he is the one who is true. Now, the word true here doesn't mean as in the opposite of false. The word actually means the opposite of unreal. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate in real. He is the ultimate truth. He is reality. Jesus is any search in life for what is true must end up with Jesus, or it's not true. 
You know, sometimes when we're, when we're sharing with people, all of these questions come up of whether they things they like about Christianity, things they don't like about Christianity, things the church has done over the years and so on. Let me tell you, all of that means nothing in the light of this. Why should anyone become a Christian? Because Jesus is the God who is. He is the one who is God. He is the one who is reality. We step outside of him, there's nothing. Listen, I know a lot of people might have had problems with the church or have been hurt by church throughout the years and it puts them off, but it's missing the point. I'm not a Christian because I like church. Thank God sometimes. <laughs> I'm a Christian because Jesus is the ultimate reality in my life. Now the next bit's quite interesting. It says he has the key of David. What he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, no one will open. Let me tell you this morning, Jesus has the ultimate authority. Nobody is above Jesus. Nobody is equal to Jesus. Nobody can question the authority of Jesus. They might try. They're wrong. Jesus said, all authority has been given to him. All authority. Let me tell you, there's nothing in your life that has authority that can take the place of Jesus. Anything that tries to set itself above Jesus in your life will fail. Anything you try to put above Jesus in your life will fail because he is the one with ultimate authority. It's very important, not just when we come to this letter, but in anything we do. Everything we do is done in the light of who Jesus is. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. He is the one who has all authority. That means there's not a thing in this world that you can face, external or internal, that he can't beat. I think somebody either here or there needs to hear this. There's something you are really battling. Jesus has authority over it. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus. There's nothing he can't defeat. Nothing. But this key is also referring back to something else. The key is also an Old Testament picture. Hezekiah had a faithful servant called Elakim. Got that right, I'm sure. This guy was over his whole household. And he was the guy who decided who could stand in the presence of the king. Isaiah heard God say this of his servant Elakim. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. That's in Isaiah 22, 22. See the link there? 
The way God was talking about Elohim. Jesus is referring to himself. The key of the house of David gave access to the king, to the kingdom. So nobody could see Hezekiah unless the guy who had the key let them in. Let me tell you, there is no way to God except through Jesus. He is the only one that can get us into the presence of God. We can't bypass him. We can't get around him. He is the only one. If we want to be part of the kingdom of God, we need to go through Jesus. He is the one who opens the door. Let me tell you, when he opens the door, nobody can shut it. I thank God Jesus opened the door in my life. I thank God that Jesus opens the door to God for me. Because I know since Jesus opened that door, nobody else can shut it. Here's the other part of it. When he closes the door, no one's getting in. There's a day coming when the door will be closed. But on this side of eternity, we all have a chance for the door to be open to us. If you have been playing with God, humming and harring, I've got time, I've got time, isn't you don't know the day that the door will close. When Jesus shuts that door, that door remains closed. Jesus is the way into the presence of God. But also in the next verse, Jesus is going to be talking about a completely different open door. Revelation 3, 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. These two things clearly linked. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus has opened a door for this church. He says this church has little power. Now, there's other ways to translate that. The other way that maybe your translation says is little strength. Now, I don't think this indicates that the church was weak in faith. Or weak in the gifts of the Spirit. Because I think if they were, Jesus would have had something to say about that. I think it's weak as in, they're small. And they're not influential. They weren't this model of this thriving, growing community like you had in Ephesus. They weren't this, you know, big... I'm trying to think of a word that's not insulting, but showy, you know, do you know what I mean? The, the, a lot of the other churches that we read about in Revelation, they had some good stuff going on. They had great works, they had great outreach, they had, you know, Ephesus was doing all sorts. And I think this church didn't have that. But what they had is they were faithful. 
says they didn't deny the name of Jesus, which, by the way, is great. But, you know, there was a lot of other churches that had terrible things happening to them and going on in them that hadn't denied the name of Jesus. Ephesus hadn't denied the name of Jesus, but Jesus was critical of them for other things. They didn't deny the name of Jesus. And then the other thing. It says, they kept his word. They kept his word. Now Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. This church passes that test. They were seen as a church that truly loved Jesus because they did what he said do. They did not open the doors to falsehood like some of the others. They were secure and they were steadfast. You know, this church might not have made it into any person's list of good churches. It wasn't one of the big up-and-comers. But they were getting it right in ways that the more prominent churches weren't. You know, as I was just studying and, and, and praying about this, it, did, it threw that question at me. How do we measure success? Is it through attendance? Because I tell you, in the summertime, hmm. I hope that's not it. You know, I, when I was first, first doing this, I used to let how many people turned up on Sunday affect my whole week. Hey, it was awful. I had to learn to get past that. Because that's not how we measure success. Is it how much we enjoy the meetings? Shouldn't be it. We can even spiritualize up in joy. <laughs> we can go, how much do we feel the presence of God when we came together? And I don't mean to you know, put that down, but I'm saying that's a type, can be a type of enjoy. Have we got good works going on? Have we got good programs going on? Do we love each other as a body? How much influence do we have in the local community? All of those things. And I'm, listen, they're all good things. But the measurement used by Jesus here to measure success is not those things. Many of the churches in Revelation were getting all that stuff right. Yet they're still condemned. But here it's the church that endures. The church that doesn't deny the reality of who Jesus is. And the church that keeps his word. That's a church. That's a success. And I tell you, that's a challenge. Is that us? If not, that's what I want us to be. That's a church that's a success. A church that endures and keeps his word. And, you know, the other stuff's good too. And Jesus is saying, I know your works. You've kept faithful. Therefore, a door's getting opened up for you. What door is Jesus opening up to the church in Philadelphia? Well, it's kind of a bit open to interpretation, really, because it's, it's, it's hard to know. It might have been the opportunity for witnessing. Because they were well-placed. They were this border city that 
had a way of getting culture and language far and wide. So they had an opportunity for the gospel. It may have been something else. It may have been blessing in the church. We'll get to that. But I think we can really learn something from Philadelphia. This church wasn't big. This church wasn't strong. But when Jesus opens a door for the gospel, nobody can shut it. Nobody can shut it. Jesus doesn't need a big church to spread the gospel. Now, I'm not saying you know, it should be small. You, know, you understand where I'm coming from here. Jesus doesn't need an exciting, culturally relevant, full of pep church for the gospel. He doesn't need a church that has influence with the local community where you know, you're constantly getting the mayor invited along. or what, what, He doesn't need that. He doesn't need any of those things. None of those things are bad. But what Jesus works with is this. It's a church that keeps his word and does not deny his name. To that church, he will open a door that nobody can close. Maybe the open door is something else. Maybe it is a time of blessing. I don't know. But the key to me is that Jesus wants to work with a church that's faithful to him. And not just faithful in preaching his word. That's not what they're commended for. It would be a mistake to think they were just preaching his word. They were keeping his word. Let me tell you, you can preach it and preach it and preach it. But if it's not enacted, it makes no odds. It makes no odds whatsoever. If we teach it from the front, but it's not lived out, if it's not applied... We're not keeping his word. We're just preaching his word. Listen, the person, the people who come and bring the word have a responsibility to bring what God's told them to bring. Yes? But everybody has the responsibility to apply it and live it out. Everybody. None of us get away with that one. It's all very well to preach it. But church, we must live it and apply it. The more I look at the churches in Revelation, you know, the more I realize, even though the letters to the angel or, you know, people of influence or, you know, we can, we can, we can debate that. But even though the letters to the angel, in every single case, the only way this stuff can actually be applied is by the people. It's by the people. Church, we have an awesome responsibility, all of us. Whether you're up here, down there, serving, not serving. To keep the word. To live by the word. To have what's proclaimed on a Sunday to affect your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And Sunday. And the next Monday. At Munich, yeah. Revelation 3.9 says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. The synagogue of Satan, they're back. We did them a couple of weeks ago. These are the same 
group of people. The same people who were causing problems in Smyrna. These were the ones who were causing persecution in Smyrna. And again, we don't know who they are. They were either the Jewish authorities, but more likely they were Gentiles who called themselves Jews, but didn't actually worship God. More likely they worshipped Caesar. Either way, doesn't matter. There's a promise to the church who have suffered under them. I will make them come and bow at your feet. And they will learn I loved you. In other words, they, they deny the truth right now. But they will see the truth. There will be a day when the truth is undeniable. When Jesus is proclaimed Lord of all, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, there will be no denying. There'll be no running from the truth. All excuses will be gone. Let me tell you, there's people now, probably in all of your families, who have given you a hard time for your faith. Fair? And you wonder, will they ever see? Will they ever see? Now I pray they see this side of eternity because regardless they will see when every knee bows and every tongue confesses there'll come a time they have no choice because they won't be able to deny what's true. But Father, oh Lord, I just pray for every family represented, every friend represented here that Lord we will see them find you this side of that dividing line. Not only will they bow before Jesus, they will see Jesus loves his church. They will see that his church will rule with him. There will ultimately be victory, even if at times right now it doesn't feel like it. This church needed to remember that, and we need to remember that. They needed to remember. That although the world denies Jesus now, although the world mocks now, although the world does some appalling things to mock our Lord today, there will be a day of vindication. Don't forget that. You know, we see some things on the news or your, your social media or wherever that just appall you. There will be a day of vindication. And knowing that, I believe helps us to endure till that day. Revelation 3, verses 10 and 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Ooh, okay. What's this? What is the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world? Now, there was the persecution that hit the church. There were many persecutions that the church in Philadelphia survived through. But that's not the same as being kept from it. They survived it. You know, when Polycarp of Smyrna, who we mentioned a few weeks ago, when he was martyred, there was 11 believers from Philadelphia who also died on that same day. 
So they weren't kept from that. That's also the persecution was a trouble that hit the church. Not a trouble that hit all who dwell upon the earth. That's the way it's described. So we're looking for something bigger than that. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Should do. <laughs> what is a trouble or a trial that has or will come upon the whole earth? Oh, we can tie it into another line in there. Because Jesus also said, I am coming soon. So if this ties in to Jesus coming soon, then what we have here is something that hasn't happened yet. To what the rest of Revelation is going to be covering. This is about enduring. The encouragement to the church is endure, hold fast. But when the great tribulation comes upon the earth, the church that endures will be kept from the tribulation. Now we can tie this in with 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 15 to 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, because these words are encouraging. So Jesus is encouraging his church to be faithful. When we look at this next section, he's going to be talking about heavenly rewards. So the promise to the church in Philadelphia, to me, strongly suggests that the rapture will be before the tribulation. I can't read that any other way. Uh, the rapture is pre-tribulation. I'm sure there's some who might disagree, but that's what I get from there. The church will be kept from the troubles that will come upon the whole earth. Because that wasn't the case. If you look at Philadelphia specifically, that wasn't the case. And the troubles that Jesus is talking about are bigger than just persecution. The only way I can read this is that the church will be spared the tribulation through the rapture. It's then followed up with this. Revelation 3, verses 12 to 13. Oh, I'm looking forward to some conversations after this. <laughs> the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is our inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
when we become part of the structure of what God is building for all eternity, referred to here as a pillar in God's temple. And the name of God gets written on us, which I think takes us back to the white stones a couple of weeks ago, where we get a new name. And here we get the promise of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. This whole last section of the letter to Philadelphia is looking ahead to the days to come. When the faithful church is spared the tribulation and inherits the kingdom of God. Church, we might not be in Philadelphia, but this is our future. This is our future. This is the reward for faithfulness to God. This is what's coming. I'm a bit forgetful. I don't know if you've noticed this about me. When I was looking for something to start the meeting with today, I'd completely forgotten this was in here. (laughs) And that we were going to be talking about the New Jerusalem. But we start the meeting with that. I thank God he can work despite my lack of brain power. (laughs) We always credit Philadelphia as the church of brotherly love. Well, what can we really learn? Because love is not mentioned in the letter at all. It's not part of the commendation. It's just how the city got its name. But that's okay, because what the letter actually contains is far more exciting. They are commended for keeping the word of Jesus and for not denying his name. This is a church that was faithful and obedient. This passage is about staying the course, holding to the truth, continuing in your faith. If you don't remember anything else that I've said, chances are high. Obedience to the word and endurance. Obedience to the word and endurance is what makes a church that Jesus commends. Reminds me of the encouragement in Colossians, Colossians 1 verses 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, we're not going to stop there. If, such an important word, tiny but important, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, if you continue stable and steadfast. That's my prayer for all of you, that you continue stable and steadfast, which I tell you is the one thing the enemy really wants to stop us doing. If he can knock us off that, he's won. 
not shifting from the truth of the gospel. Jesus has set an open door before his faithful church. A church that stays pure unto his word. What is that open door? It might be opportunities for the gospel. And boy do we need them. Boy we need them. Might be opportunities for blessing. Might be opportunities as a door to the presence of God. Just as it was with Hezekiah. Entrance to the king. This is what I do know is when Jesus opens that door. We need to make the most of the opportunity. When Jesus opens opportunities to the gospel, we need to make the most of every opportunity we have because people need to hear that they need Jesus. They need to hear the truth of the gospel. We need to get the gospel to people. We need to get people in front of the gospel by any means necessary. The church in Philadelphia was at a cultural crossroads. It had such an amazing opportunity to spread the word. I feel a little bit like the church now is also at a cultural crossroads. You know, today, there's you lot here. Yeah? But this message can go around the world before the eight days over. Isn't that remarkable? Now, getting it to individuals is, is, is more of a challenge, but there's this barrier that's been there for so long. I mean, Paul had to travel so far. Wesley, every day on horseback, every day on horseback, just to get the message around the country. We are living in an age... I tell you, I wonder what Wesley would have made of today. I mean, he'd have been shocked by some things, but I think he would have took every opportunity afforded him. Who was it who was saying this? I can't remember. I can't remember, but when Wesley was first preaching, he was preaching in churches. And Whitfield was preaching in the streets. And he was like, the gospel shouldn't be preached out there. I don't want to go out there. Then he started getting kicked out of the churches. And he was forced to go out into the streets, and that's where he changed the country. <laughs> well, he didn't, God did, you, you know what I mean. Everything changed once he got out there. Listen, I know that sometimes, uh, sometimes there's a reluctance for, for this. But I think if we make the most of every opportunity God gives us, there's no limit to where the gospel can go now. Amen. No limit. But we've got to make the most of it. In other ways, I tell you, we, we are living in one of the most extraordinary ages where the evil is just a click away. Never before has the world had so much access to evil. Never before has the world had so much potential access to good. Oh, I've lost my notes. Where am I? Yes, Jesus opens the door of opportunity. But it's for us to use that opportunity. Why was the door open to this church? It was open because it was faithful. Faithful to the name of Jesus and faithful to live out his word. Jesus responds to faithful endurance. 
Now, there's some in this room who have endured for a lot longer than some others. Doesn't matter, we're all in the same race. And the finishing line's the same place for all of us. We endure until the end. You know, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, we read that because they left their first love, because they'd not endured and kept to what Jesus had asked them to do, they were in danger of losing their lamp, their lampstand. But to the church that's faithful, there's the promise of blessing. There's the promise of reward. There's the promise of being kept from what's coming on the earth. And there's the promise, better than all of that, of the kingdom of God. Jesus is coming to set up a kingdom that will know no end. And he's inviting all of us, all of us, whether you know him right now or not, because that bit's easy fixed, <laughs> to reign and be part of that with him forever. Forever. You know, when you put, a, I think the pillars are very striking imagery. Because you know, what, what, we've got pillars, sort of. Can't kind of made of steel, but. We've got pillars all around this place, around the outside. And I tell you, they're not going anywhere. You take the pillars out, everything collapses. Jesus wants you to be a pillar. Something that is permanently, permanently part of what he's building. That's the promise of the kingdom of God. And the reward is eternal. You know, on the surface, this church was weak. It was small. But Jesus said, I'll make you an everlasting pillar. And a pillar to me speaks of strength. It's not about influence. It's not about strength in this world. It's about faithfulness. That is a church that Jesus commends. I don't know about you. That's what I want to be. You can take the world, but give me Jesus. I want to be faithful to him. I want to endure. And I just have a feeling this morning and we've already prayed for one thing. We'll have to pray for more than one thing in a meeting. <laughs> that there's some who are the endurance part's getting hard. Maybe you're weary. Maybe temptation's actually making things hard. I want to pray for the strength for you to endure. I'm not going to ask you to come at the front, but I will ask us all to stand. Uh, Greg, can you bring the worship team back up as well? If we all stand together, I don't want anyone to feel out of place in this. So I'm going to pray for all of you. Because I'll be honest with you, if there's somebody in here who's not struggling with endurance, <laughs> a bit of prayer is not going to do you any harm. <laughs> Father God, we come to you, Lord. In humility, 
Lord, this race can feel like a long time. And Lord, we've cast things off, but still sometimes that endurance can feel hard. And I pray for every person who is struggling to endure this morning, both here and online. That Father God, encourage us to endure. Holy Spirit, lift up the weary arms. Lift up the weary minds. Lift up the weary bodies. And Lord, I just pray for every person in this place. That Lord, where there's been weariness, there'll be a freshness. And you'll cause us to rise up on wings like eagles. And that Lord, we will endure until the race is over. Lord, I pray that this place and these people, we will be a body that keeps your word. Not just hears your word, but keeps your word. And endures. And Lord, I thank you. And pray, Father, that Lord, the doors you open to us and no one else can shut. Lord, give us the confidence to go through them and to make a difference in this world for you. We thank you that you are coming soon. We thank you that you're coming for your church. And Lord, we long for that day where your kingdom is established over all the earth. Amen. Amen.